Good afternoon, everybody. On behalf of the EMU Provost's Office and the Intellectual Life Committee, I am delighted to welcome you to today's colloquium featuring a powerhouse selection of EMU faculty. And I would just like to remind students who need convocation points to sign in in the lobby and remember to sign out as you leave in order to get your points. But um, today's speakers include, well, first of all, Stephen David Johnson, who's a conservation photographer and professor of visual and communication arts. Steve's photography of the natural world has appeared in Orion, Nature Conservancy Magazine, Ranger Rick, which some of us remember from our younger years, Virginia Wildlife, National Science Teachers Association press books, and numerous conservation publications and journals. In 2021, 2020-21, he was a finalist for Close-Up Photographer of the Year, and he has most recently published a beautiful ebook I commend to you entitled Vernal Pools, Documenting Life in Temporary Ponds. Steve is also vice president of the Virginia Wild Wilderness Committee, and he and his wife, Anna Maria, have recently established a nature preserve on some property. So ask him about that if you're interested. Joining Steve on this panel is Kevin Seidel, who is originally from California and came to EMU in 2008 from the University of Virginia, where he earned a PhD in English literature and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture. Kevin teaches and writes about the changing relationship among religion, secularism, and literature, and is a longtime practitioner of scriptural reasoning in which Jews, Christians, and Muslims meet together to read one another's scripture. His book, Rethinking the Secular Origins of the Novel, The Bible in English Fiction, 1678 to 1767, was published by Cambridge University Press in March 2021. Our third panelist today is Marianne Zare, who served as a journalist for 14 years for Education Week and then taught as an English history and ESL teacher in public schools for eight years. Marianne has taught English in universities in Chechewan, China, and has also taught writing at the University of Maryland. Her essays and features have appeared in the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun, and the Harrisonburg Citizen. She's been teaching writing to our first year students since the 2019-2020 school year and currently also serves as EMU's writing coach for adult learners and graduate students. So please join me in welcoming these three colleagues to our afternoon panel. I'm Kevin Seidel, and I've been teaching T. Bowie's book, The Best We Could Do, in my college writing class this semester, and was asked to sort of do this panel with Steve and Marianne, and, and yeah, happy to be here doing it. So I just wanted to run through quickly a kind of game plan for this next hour. Um, Steve is going to start and talk about how sequential art works. Um, Marianne will, will uh, follow talking about translingual and multimodal possibilities with graphic storytelling, how students respond. And then I'll do a couple of examples, uh, close reading a few pages of the best we could do. And if all goes well, sometime around 4.35, half hour or so from now, we would um, turn this out to you all to participate in some of these close readings of particular images from the book as a way to kind of just, I don't know, get more familiar with it, 
talk to one another. So we'll do that the last part of uh, the hour. There are some people who are watching maybe on Facebook Live, and so when we break into small group sections, uh, you'll feel very lonely because you won't be able to see anything. We'll all be having these good conversations without you, like you won't hear what's going on. So if that's you, you could try to find someone in your house and bring them in at that moment and say, look at these images with me and let's talk about them. And you could sort of organize your own uh, small group discussion. So that's the plan. Again, I'm glad you all are here. And with that, I'll turn it over to Steve. Thank you, Kevin. So I wanted to start off uh, thinking about illustrations and how images work. I see some of my photo students in the audience, so uh, you'll know a, a bit of this. Uh, this is the opening spread for this graphic memoir. And if you take a look at it, you might feel something right away, uh, but you may not have the vocabulary to think about why. So this is the kind of stuff that we do in a photo one class or a basic design class, taking the things that work on us, sometimes in hidden ways, and making them explicit. In a lot of ways, it's similar to music theory. We all know that music acts on us in emotional ways. And if you write a piece of music, you're thinking about rhythm and timbre and all the things that command emotion. So if we started off with an image like this, first thing I might note is the diagonal lines in the waves. My photo one students will know I love talking about diagonal lines. Now, why is that? Uh, lines connote different types of emotions. And that's because we all inhabit a world that has certain physical properties. So for example, I'm resisting gravity right now. I'm standing straight up, I'm a, I'm a vertical line. Uh, when I'm tired, I'm lying down and I'm at rest. That's a horizontal line. We can abstract from that and just use the lines themselves. Now what about a diagonal? It's somewhere in the middle. It's instable. So it's in a kind of state of disequilibrium and you can start to feel that psychologically there. The repetition of those wavy diagonal lines gives you this sort of sense of energy and instability. It's also overwhelming our character here. So we could talk about other things like proportion. The fact that this giant wave in relationship to its scale with the character is overwhelming the character. And there's contrast, which is creating a sense of isolation. Character dressed in white, surrounded by that black, almost portal-looking shape beneath the waves. And this will be kind of a recurring image in this piece. Now, for a lot of this talk, I'm going to be drawing on Scott McCloud's 1993 book called Understanding Comics, the Invisible Art. Now, even though McCloud gives a definition of comics here, juxtapose pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence. He actually spends most of the book referring to this as sequential art. And that's because the word comics often conjures up particular genres like superhero stories. Nothing against Marvel movies, I love them, uh, but there's a lot more to say about how art can work in sequence. So for example, in McCloud's book, using this kind of iconic character, he leads us through 
a discussion of what sequential art can actually do. And he notices that sequential art can address all sorts of topics well beyond the superhero genre. In this next section, I'm going to talk a little bit about how time and sequence work in relationship to imagination. First of all, there are things that are part of every graphic memoir or novel that we don't always talk about. For example, the images tend to be bounded by boxes, the kind of typical comic panel. McLeod points out that when we're working in this graphic form, the actual length of the box gives us a sense of the time frame. That's really interesting. Time and space become indicated or conflated in this really interesting way. Here's an example from the best we could do. You might have just kind of, you know, breezed over this little panel. So this is Tam's birth. And you'll notice here that the character is broken up with a gutter in the middle. That's what this line is called between two panels. Those two panels together are indicating the passage of time. And actually we see her kind of groan of childbirth extending across those two panels, giving us a sense that this is, this is not just a moment. This is happening over time. Now back to Scott McCloud's examples. McCloud talks a lot about the space between panels. Again, this idea of the gutter in comics or sequential art. So take a look at these two panels. We've got an axe murderer on one side, and then it just cuts to a city scene with, yeah! What happens in that space? You know, I imagine for a lot of you, you're, you're getting the scene. You may be putting words together in your head, maybe images in your head. McLeod says that gutter space provides us with an imaginative area where we become a partner in crime. So we each imagine what's happened, how this poor man has probably died uh, in our own way. So it's a very participatory way of including an audience in this really simple format. Two panels divided by an imaginative type of space. And you'll see there's actually a really simple, uh, similar example in the best we could do. We have a conversation that's, that's happening and suddenly this crash. And we don't really see until the next page what's happened with that crash. So we're left with our imagination to try to understand what's happening. A page turn can operate in kind of a similar way. Except it's even more extended. So here we've got a page from the best we could do early in the book, talking about the childbirth experience. And I'll note, too, look at those really expressive lines again. But as we move through space, we're also moving through time until we get to this last little bit of dialogue, my first thought is. And then we don't actually know what that is until the page turns. Don't let him fall.
McLeod talks about the idea that comics is what he calls a monosensory medium, and that it relies only on the visual, purportedly, to get ideas across. And yet, there's all these other things that we start to feel in our senses that happen in this imaginative space. So if we go back to this section right here, my first thought is, don't let him fall. Once we get to this panel, don't let him fall, we start to imagine what's happened in between the two. The feel of the baby, the sounds of the hospital, the smell of a newborn. These are all the things that comics can do uh, to engage our senses. McLeod writes, between the panels, none of our senses are required at all, which is why all of our senses are engaged, again, in an imaginative type of way. Another aspect of time, all these panels exist in the same space, which means like in a panel like this, where we get the sense of this shadowy person moving across a background, we also see the person in the foreground. These are three separate moments in time, but they're all conflated in the same space, and they all begin to speak to each other in interesting ways. Okay, getting into our last couple minutes, so even though we've been talking about the idea of sequential art, a lot of sequential art is told through the cartoon form. This might be our more traditional understanding of comics. This is an example of moving from representation into an increasingly stylized, more abstract way of showing a human figure. McLeod writes that when we're having a conversation, we look at somebody else and we can see their details. But when we think about our own self, we have kind of a sketchy view of our own expression and our own being in the world. So that when you look at a cartoon, you see yourself. You see that kind of sketchy expression. That allows us to project ourselves imaginatively into that iconic space. And we see that in the graphic novel. Backgrounds can contribute to that kind of expressive state in the way that they use lines. And we see that again in a couple of examples here, continuing that sort of water metaphor. The combination of realistic backgrounds with iconic figures allows us to project ourselves imaginatively into the space of the figures while also seeing what they see. And this is a really nice juxtaposition right here. And I'll close with the idea of visual metaphors. So we've already talked about this first panel, introducing this water metaphor, feeling overwhelmed. That continues throughout the book, thinking about death and danger and rivers and these very energetic lines. But it suddenly switches at the end and becomes a tree metaphor, which is something that's much more grounded. And then it literally explores the roots. So as our author is thinking about rootedness, she's representing that visually, but then bookends with this final closing set of images. 
moving back into the water, but this time navigating through it in a controlled way. So if we've moved from chaos in the water to uh, a sense of control or comfort in this environment. And you might notice in the form here, those lines in the water actually look a lot like the lines of the roots. And I think that's intentional. Thank you, that was wonderful. Uh, my presentation is about a couple of ideas for teaching, uh, translingual and multimodal possibilities. And these came, these are possibilities with teaching a graphic memoir. And I was very happy that EMU picked a graphic memoir because it gives me a chance to dip my toe a bit into multimodality when I'm not really a tech savvy person. Uh, wrong way. All right, so just considerations of translingual and multimodal modal approaches. I've been reading in research literature, literature and the composition um, literature about how it's particularly good for diverse students, particularly students whose first language is in English. I, uh, I refer to students whose first language is in English as multilingual students. Couple of definitions. In 2011, there was an opinion piece defining translingual approach as recognizing variety, fluidity, intermingling, and changeability of languages as a resource, not a detriment to learning English. Multimodal approach is really moving away from language for everything, um, or like an alphabetic text as a definition. Uh, that's, that's a definition that Laura Gonzalez uses, and she's done a lot of work with multimodality and translingual approaches for Latinx students in Texas. All right, so I developed a one-class uh, assignment for students to make their own comic art to respond to the memoir. Um, and I, it's a, it was just like 100 participation points. It needs to have six panels. It should have two characters. It should have four four speech bubbles, which I learned you're supposed to call them speech balloons later, um, and just tell a story um, about the people you come from, or a family story, or it could just be uh, people you come from like you know, on a sports team or something, something like that, not necessarily family. Okay, so quite a few students um, drew on this idea of these are the people I come from. And also quite a few students picked up on what the book said, uh, the, the book storyline of uh, an adult child interviewing parents and learning more about their story. I shared my graphic novel um, memoir collection with them. I'm kind of crazy about them. And I just lay them out on the table so students could flip through them. Here's Jackie going back to the book for inspiration. Juliana and Ashley, uh, I went to Gift and Thrift and got some colored pencils and rulers, uh, and we had like a class period where we were just making the comic art. Andre in his thinking pose. Tavan in his thinking pose. Kara in her thinking pose. Ikram, thinking and creating. And then um, the students had the until the next class period to finish their art, 
and then they shared them. So I put students in a line and they shared their art with at least three other students in pairs. So I created a sample just to show the students, you don't have to be a good artist. So this is my uh, sample of comic art. It's a story I converted that, uh, to comic art that my father had told me where he saw a family, um, a family drowned in a creek near his house when he was 11 years old. And what I remember from this story, I put in the last panel. He said, that night I cried myself to sleep. And I remembered that, and I put a little comic noise in there. Wah, wah. And my father was kind of a tough guy, so uh, I thought it was kind of funny when I'm just like putting him in here. Wah, wah. Okay, now for the rest of the time, I just want to share with you the art from my students. So this is from Kushi. And so a little bit about the translingual approach. I invite my students to use words in their home languages in their writing. And we particularly did this uh, this semester with food writing. Many of my students use words from their home languages in food writing. I actually kind of forgot to tell them with this assignment, you're still invited to use words in your own language uh, in, the, in the work. And Kushi just did it. And I asked her afterward why she did that. And she said, well, we could do it in food writing, so I figured we could do it here. So I'm going to read a little bit about this story. She's typing. She talks to her sister who's in Nepal. Why did you call if you're busy? Talk to me, sister. Well, today is Dashain, and we miss you. Did you hear Dashain? OK, what? She goes, give me a sec, sister. There it is. She goes to her wardrobe, and she finds a special dress, Chobandi. Uh, she names the parts here for us. Perfect. And Kushi actually wore, she didn't wear this dress because she said it was a little complicated to put on, so she wore another special dress that day. She was wearing it, so she thought of that, and she put it into her uh, piece. Okay, this is Asmita, who's also from Nepal. And I wanted to point out to, uh, to you about this one. You notice the character that's a little bit kind of like a, not a human character? And I was curious about that because I thought maybe she saw the mouse cover, which, uh, Art Spiegelman, he uses characters who aren't human in his, uh, in his art to tell the story. And she told me, no, she just came up with that. It's a mean teacher. Uh, the teacher says, I'm 100% sure that you cannot do anything in your life. My analyzation is never wrong. And she says it's a witch or a ghost, that character. So you can do that in comic art. It wouldn't come off the same way in an essay. This is Ashley. She picked up on the part where T. Bowie talks about everybody in the family, how they were born, and she has everybody how they were born, where they were born, and then she adds a bit of a story element. Um, her parents got married in 2017, and all the children went to the wedding. Everybody celebrated, and then they moved into a new house. This is Lady. She did something kind of interesting, too. The people were from. She has all her brothers and, uh, brothers and sisters there. But it's actually her mom's family. And she's putting a story. She's picking up on the migration theme that T. Bowie has in her book. And she tells a story. She's interviewing her mom, so, sort of this adult child interviewing a parent that T. Bowie does. She tells the story uh, of her mother. Her mother had a lot of brothers and sisters. She went to Mexico City to work as a, a domestic uh, person. Uh, and then um, she came to the United States. A little story there. Uh, I have two more. This is uh, Sun Ming. He's from South Korea. And uh, again, the family, the adult child, father, a dynamic. He's picking up on that theme. 
Um, he goes camping with his dad. His dad says, if it rains, we have to go home, but I don't think it'll rain, so let's set up the tent. They set up the tent. Ping, ping, starts raining. Uh, then an hour later, it rained a lot. Oh no, take down the tent. In the end, we went home. I can't believe we have to go home, me too. So picking up on a theme there of the parent and child relationship. Uh, and this is the last work I wanted to share uh, from a student. This is Trinity. Uh, and all of, all of the work I showed you before were uh, by multilingual students. Trinity is not a multilingual student. Um, and she picked up on the story. I like her story. I think it's kind of funny. Uh, and again, uh, the subtlety of kind of the parent-child dynamic. Um, the teenager says, I'm going to get a, a tattoo. Mom says, I guess you can get one now. Drive to the tattoo shop. Woohoo, let's go. Yay, finally here. So excited. I want a tattoo. Mom says, it better be a right choice. Show me the tattoo you want. Uh, I want my tattoo to say Philippians 4, 13, please. Three, hour, three hours later. OMG, it looks so cool. That was a good choice. I'll pay. <laughs> so I enjoyed, this was like a simple activity, you know, just doing something other than just words and alphabet in the composition classroom. And just for participation points, the students did write a literary essay about the book, um, but just a way to try some other approaches in teaching. And that's it. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Steve. So I thought I'd just walk through a, a few sets of images that caught my attention I was reading as I was reading this book with my students in my class. Um, here's one example. The responsibility is immense. A wave of empathy for my mother washes over me. This is Tibui, like after she's had her first child, um, just coming to terms with the responsibility of having a child, and then and then thinking again about, about her mother. A few pages later, we hear the story about the circumstances of her birth. Um, she says she's born in Saigon in 1975. That same year, Bo's grandfather died and I was conceived. On the road to Dion to visit his grave, my parents would pass a large statue of Fat Ba Kwan Am, the goddess of mercy. After praying for months to keep me safe, my parents said I was born with her face. Um, and what I love about this is that bottom image, you can see the parents just looking at her face, but you don't see the face, right? But here you have this large face here, almost like it's filling in for what the parents are, are looking at. Um, so just those two images together, you can see she's sort of anticipating that glimpse of the goddess of mercy a little bit later as you're flipping through those first, first pages. Um, this is another, I think, just really important page in the book that I wanted to draw your attention. If there's anything that kind of helps summarize what the book is about, or, or uh, as my, I don't want to even say the word thesis statement because students will just get anxious, and many of you will now like not be able to pay attention to anything else I say. But you can think of this as the thesis statement of the of the book. Right, soon after that trip back to Vietnam, our first since we escaped in 1978, I began to record our family history thinking that if I bridged the gap between the past and the present, I could fill the void between my parents and me. And that if I could see Vietnam as a real place and not as a, not a symbol of something lost, I would see my parents as real people and learn to love them better. 
Um, I love this moment because right, she's sort of acknowledging the stakes of this research, right? She has this sense if, if she studies her family's, a particular family's past, if she studies about Vietnam's history, she'll be able to sort of bridge this gap that she feels with her parents. They're all living in proximity, they're sort of sharing their life together, but she still feels this incredible distance. And the book that you read, the book in your hand, is really her account of, of doing that research and sort of learning to love her parents better. And that image of her as a child, right, with this, it's almost like some kind of wind has blown this Vietnam-shaped hole sort of out of her body, right, and it exists here. So there are some other images that, um, yeah, I'll just run through here that seem connected to this one. So though my world was small, I would sometimes dream of being free in it. So this is her just remembering her childhood. Um, and then this is the image that Steve showed at the very end where she's, Tibui is thinking about her own son. I see a new life bound with mine quite by coincidence, and I think maybe he can be free. If you put these images together, it's, it's interesting just to look at some of the connections between them, but um, this middle image, I think, Tibui does this a lot. There's a little bit of like the shape of the edge of Vietnam as she's swimming through this here, at least that I see in this kind of like similar line. Um, and I wonder if this picture at the end where her son is swimming sort of through this, it, it resembles a little bit like some of these parts of Vietnam here, where now instead of right, something that's haunting her right, as, as a child, it's, it's like a, a space that her son is sort of swimming freely through. Um, and yeah, this is something that I thought was... Uh, Kind of great just looking at these images together. But you can see, right, her sense of freedom as a child is like picked up a little bit by her son. And Steve pointed out, like, I, which I hadn't noticed, how some of these lines resemble the roots and sort of wondering if that, that chaotic water image um, is transferred into something like roots. And what I see happening too is, oh, I'm not going to be able to find it, but that first image that Steve showed you were from the opening. Um, where this child is sitting in the chaos of waves. Like what's striking to me about that too is how poised and calm she is as a child there, like with all that chaos around her. And so you see her kind of reflecting on that or just thinking about the possibility of, of being calm or sort of swimming through these really chaotic situations. Okay, so what I wanted to do was like give you all a chance to sort of see what you notice about some of these images that are up here. Um, so I'm just going to read through this one and then walk you through just a series of like questions to ask and to talk about with one another. Let's see where this, where this goes. <clears throat> At least I no longer feel the need to reclaim a homeland. I understand enough of Vietnam's history now to know that the ground beneath my parents' feet had always been shifting so that by the time I was born, Vietnam was not my country at all. I was only a small part of it. And then this is the opposite page. What was worried, what has worried me since having my own child was whether I could pass, I would pass along some gene for sorrow or unintentionally inflict damage I could never undo. So I thought we could just concentrate on this left-hand panel. And so we'll try this out. So if we're just looking at what's on the page, so we're not trying to do any heavy interpretation or find anything sort of uh, 
particularly profound in this round were just like, what do you notice about the illustrations, the line, the details, the focus, background, foreground color, arrangement of panels, other things. So let's just take uh, about two minutes and maybe huddle up into groups of three or four with someone nearby and just share. What do you notice about that, that image? Sorry, Facebook people, that I keep walking away from the microphone like that, which is like incredibly irritating. But this is the moment you have to find someone at home to do this with as well. Okay, just take another 30 seconds or so and then we'll shift gears to another set of questions. Okay, here I want you to talk with the person nearby or people nearby. Um, what do the illustrations remind you of visually? What does the text remind you of? What in your internal library are you bringing to your reading of this image? And so here we're sort of moving off the page just to think sort of, uh, just use this for a second. So we're just moving off the page um, to think about whatever this reminds us of visually. It could be uh, a scene from a movie, a different work of art, uh, a different spot in this book if you've read it. And what I mean by internal library is uh, it's a metaphor for thinking about all the things that we, we bring to any encounter with something strange that we're trying to figure out the meaning of. So my assumption is that all of us have like within our hearts and minds right, a set of like what we could call books of things that we've actually read, movies that we've seen, conversations we've had, work experience that we've had, right? And so um, a good work of art will sort of shine light on different parts of our internal library. Um, I liked in Steve's presentation when he talked about the gutter, right? The gutter is this chance where suddenly we bring our own imaginations to the artwork, right? And so this part of the conversation is really a chance to slow down and do that. What are we, what are we bringing to to this, uh, this panel as we look at it. Okay, so 
Try that for a couple minutes. Talk about that together. Um, what does this remind you of visually? Okay, just take about 30 more seconds and then we'll shift to one last set of questions. Okay, so now having walked through these first two steps of just paying attention to what you see on the screen, paying attention to your own internal library, what do you bring to your sort of looking, of, uh, looking at this image? Let's try to put that together and just, just think about it. And I'm sure you've already talked about a lot of these things, but what about the text or the illustration surprises you? What are you curious about? And what I'm hoping is I want you all to talk about this one more time for a couple minutes, and then we'll let that... Um, sort of start our, our kind of whole room conversation. So talk about this set, and then we'll sort of talk together as a whole group. Okay, go for it.
All right, let's talk about this as a whole room. We'll see how this goes. So I'm going to hand one microphone to Rhonda, who's going to take this stairwell. I'll take this stairwell. And I would say, like, you should feel free to share, like, any of these three sets of questions. Like, oh, I noticed this cool thing just about the image itself, like, from observations or from the connections or something from putting it together. We can just see where conversation takes us. Thank you, brave person up there. This is, it's just something that I noticed and I don't know what it means necessarily, but I noticed that the orange that's everywhere and it's particularly in this panel, just so much orange and it has this kind of, for me, it had this kind of like sunburned, smoggy, like like you're in a big city and the sun is setting and it's hot and the air is thick and it's heavy and it's oppressive and it feels like it's pushing down on the characters and pushing in on them and <laughs> that I, it's the orange just <laughs> I think that's a great observation just yeah. I mean noticing the orange here and if you flip through the whole book you notice that's the only color that she uses in the whole book is orange mm -hmm. but does anyone have like thoughts about that like ideas about it yeah go ahead yeah yeah okay <laughs> Sure. Talk about orange. Yeah, I mean, there's two things. One, it it's feels warm to me, so it doesn't feel quite as maybe oppressive as for some people. But then I've always really appreciated orange, and it also relates to the idea that I was talking to Thomas about is I resonate with this not being able to go to your homeland which is ironic. I mean, I could get in a car and drive there and be there in four hours, but it's not my home. Meaning, it's, there is this idea that it never was my home in a way that I resonate with in this book. And ironically, what did I do to my room when I lived there is I painted it orange because it was my way to try to escape this black and white culture. So, I think even color we respond to differently based on our own histories. So for me, it's a warm color. It's a color of life and vibrance and maybe even hopeful. Not the yellow, bright, sunny hopefulness. That's not, but it's that, it's still this grounded hopefulness. All right, we can go other directions here. Other observations or comments about orange? I should just say, because this came up in our class, one of my students brought this up as we started doing research papers. Um, they were interested in Agent Orange and the effects of Agent Orange in Vietnam. And it's interesting like how little, I don't even know if Tibui talks about it anywhere explicitly in the whole book, 
even though each page is orange, and it seems like orange ha you know, represents something like the difficulty of like, grappling with the past, right? And so sometimes that orange seems ominous and threatening, sometimes warm and vibrant. Um, it seems like every panel orange looks and feels a little bit different, but I think always in the background is, I don't know if I can say this very well, but it, it seems like if you go into this book like I did, looking for certain stereotypes about Vietnam or the things that you know, like, oh, I, Vietnam is a place where everyone was harmed by Agent Orange, and still today there are genetic defects caused by Agent Orange. Um, Tibui seems to know that and then just lead you away from those kinds of stereotypes to think like, I'm gonna use Orange to tell a kind of like a generational family saga and you can have Agent Orange in the background, but I'm gonna sort of do something different with it uh, in this book. Yeah. Okay, what else surprised you, caught your attention? So we were just talking about orange, but one of the things that we talked about is where there is not orange. And in that, what I'm gonna call the final panel here, which is in the lower right corner, it looks as though they've arrived somewhere. And I see three people, two taller and one short, and they have, I'm saying they've arrived because they set down their bags, what they were carrying. And then also, I've been hiking before and it looks like that's an overlook but we don't see what they're looking at, and we don't see any color there. And so that just stood out to me. And I was curious, where are they? What are they looking at? Super, that's another sharp observation. Anyone have ideas about that, that bottom? Yeah. Do you want to ask about something else or make another comment? Yeah, do, just add something. The, uh the text, uh, the last box, where it was um, after like the ground had always been shifting. Vietnam was not my country at all; small part of it. Like, I don't know enough about Vietnam's history to know exactly what would do that, but that's something that made me curious about it. But then also the whole like using her um, like using like the need, uh, no longer need to find a homeland sort of seems like a way to connect with her parents and also just like from where she was from. And then looping like her parents and also Vietnam into like the same sentence makes it wonder if like she's a small part of both things. Like, because Vietnam has been shifting so much, maybe her parents have more of like a focus or like concern on that than like her being in their lives or something like that. As like this page as context of what's going on, but yeah, yeah, super. Thanks. Other things we can add to the mix? <laughs> we talked a little bit about the um, relationship between the top right panel and the bottom panel. Uh, I'm thinking about that idea that things from different time frames all exist in the same space and act on each other. Um, when I see that last bottom right panel and then go back to the top panel, 
Tibui's parents start to look like part of the landscape to me, like she's navigating between two cliff edges, uh, which I think may have been an, an intentional uh, to think about them as maybe obstacles in some way or things to be navigated around. Yeah, that's, that's super. And it reminds me a little bit of your comment about like these, these two things that she's struggling with is her relationship to her family and also to her homeland. I mean, one of the things I find really striking about, I think it's, it's really the, the words in this panel where this is at, towards the end of the book, right, where she says she no longer feels this deep need to reclaim a homeland. Um, and it's so different than right, this image here, where when I saw that, I thought, okay, so the whole goal of this book is to basically fill this Vietnam shaped hole in her heart, right? And she'll do this by research and getting in, in learning her family story, her parents' story. But by the time you get to the end, she says something really different, which is she doesn't feel this deep need anymore. And that's after going back to Vietnam, doing this research, talking to her parents, right? Suddenly her relationship to Vietnam has changed. It's not one that of like deep need to reconnect to her past place, but she's sort of has this freer relationship to her past um, than she did going into, into the story. And her parents, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think, you know, when Sarah was drawing attention to this bottom, like, what are they looking at here? To me, what's striking is, like, how different that is than, oh, do we have it? I can't go all the way back to the beginning. Man, I like those cartoons. Um, if we look at the very first image, right, it's the family, um, the cover of the book. Does anyone have the book on them? They could hold it up. They're silly, yeah. But the cover of the book is like the family looking forward and then T. Bui as a, as a girl is looking backwards, sort of. And, and there's a sense of like, that's what the book is. It's her looking into her family's past. But this is the moment where she's turned forward and facing with her parents a kind of unknown future. We, don't, we aren't given the shape of what that is, but she's looking, sort of looking ahead, um, which I think is, is kind of cool too. I'm looking at the clock. We've got a few more minutes. I think, I'm only hesitating to, to jump. I don't want to jump into another image that we could have like a quick, well, I don't know, what do you all want to do? You want to look at one more? Talk about it with your neighbors. <laughs> there were like two excited people, yes, and everyone else was like, it's late, it's almost five o'clock. <laughs> I just want to say, as a veteran, um, I never went to Vietnam, but just being in the VA, like around other veterans, you pick up the Vietnam all the time. And it's, you don't even have to be a veteran to do that. Like uh, Pat and Earl Martin, um, if anybody of you know them, just live on College Avenue. Like any anybody who's been exposed to like the Vietnam thing, like 
I think that the denuded tree is a good image of that. And, and the connection with Agent Orange, I think, is probably good, too. But um, I just wanted to point out, like, uh, the the just the association of Vietnam to, like, trauma and um, how deep that goes. And how do you, how do you, I think what T. Bui's trying to do is explain that in a way to her kid that's not so traumatic. But, like, um, I feel like I have PTSD secondary from just being around people who were in Vietnam. I mean, that whole generation, some of you are old enough to know that, but, like, that whole generation is just, it will never leave their, their thoughts. Thanks, Evan. All right, we've got a couple more minutes. Any last comments or thoughts? I'm just maybe just uh, picking up on what Evan shared. Like one of the things I've come to really like about uh, sequential arts or graphic novels or gra graphic memoirs is how um, good they are at making really, really difficult subject matter approachable. Um, so we can think about, like in Tibui's case, like generational family trauma by seeing it in graphic form in a way I think that would be harder if we were like just reading straight up just text or if we are watching like a, a realistic movie about it. Um, and if you know uh, other sort of graphic works of art, and maybe I'll just flip through to the end and say so we just put up here a list of resources. Um, Michael Kavna covers comics and graphic novels for the Washington Post, and he's always keeping track of uh, just great works of art in this medium. Um, but I think that's one of their special gifts is like just to be able to sort of grapple with difficult things in a form that gives you time to like close the book or pause between moving from panel to panel. Um, again, it's different than movies, uh, different than than reading books, and I think feels also different than like maybe scrolling through our phones and looking at news feeds or memes or whatever it is we're seeing. There's, there's something that it's about this visual medium that allows us to slow down and sort of take things in at our own pace that, uh, yeah, I think is healing in a way. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Because uh, I've been musing on this, the difference between sequential art like this mm -hmm. and movies, okay. which of course is one of my passions. Yeah. I think there's a difference in voice or how we hear the voice it, between the sequential art is there a difference in the voice and what we hear in a movie and I've been musing on that in my morning runs and if you would have an answer for me that'd yeah. be great it, I, maybe I do I mean we in my class we watched a short interview with T. Bowie when she was presenting this book somewhere in San Francisco and she had random audience members read the different voices of her family. And she, she spent quite a long time talking about how much she enjoyed hearing strangers read out the lines for her mom, dad, brother, and sister. Um, and I was kind of surprised by that. I thought, like, it's all about the art, the visual. She doesn't really care that much about the text. But I think... So like in the same way that Steve was drawing attention to the gutter between is this place where our imaginations can sort of come into 
the sequential art, I think for Tibui, she wanted the, the voice to also be a place where we could sort of come in. So there's something about, it's different than a movie where we're not hearing an actor speak to us, but we have to sort of speak those lines even like silently in our heads. And so even the text and the voice is a place where we participate. And in that moment, we're connecting to her family's story. And I feel like she's, she's, she feels like her family story is honored in that moment when we take the time to sort of read those words and stay with those images. And maybe that's different than a, like a movie, I want to say can't do that, doesn't do voice that same way. But we never get to investigate a frame. Right. Meaning there's we, no we frozenness. I, and I'm still trying to yeah, figure out what that question. frozenness means differently in, in how I might respond to something versus the fact that I can't ever see the detail in a movie because it's... I don't want to say they're detailless, but I mean, it's always right. moving past that. And this is sort of like parked. Yeah. And that moving past can be a gift in a different way. Like, uh, we, I mm -hmm. mean, we talk, maybe we can talk about this afterwards and I'll draw things to a close. But so one of the things I, so for me as a literature teacher, right, I spend most of my time just reading fiction and reading poetry. And I love talking about the limitations and possibilities of those genres and what they can do artistically and what they can. And I feel like sometimes students will always try to pick fights with me, like, well, I'm sure you loved Lord of the Rings or whatever it is, and you hated the movies, right, because you're a literature professor. And I was like, well, so I, I can never just sort of trash artistic mediums. For me, like, all artistic mediums have these amazing limitations and amazing possibilities, and, and artists know how to work within those constraints and also sort of break out and find new possibilities. And so it's just a question of how do artists use it for better or for worse? And we, we talk about it kind of like we talked about this today. So um, thanks everyone for being here. If you want to look at some of these slides more, we put this like tiny URL so you can, you can take a picture of that or write it down um, and you can look at some of these resources. Uh, we'll stick around. There's a short reception afterwards. Do I need to say any, anything else, Rhonda, about that? Uh, I'll just mention, is this on? Yeah. You can hear me. Okay. Uh, next colloquium is November 16th uh, with Simone Horst. So come back in the middle of November for another one. Thank you so much, panelists. Yeah. Appreciate you all being here. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>